have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. Are you ready for this? To the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, we have been on a journey for some time. Now, that's the book of Malachi. Open them to the book of Malachi. The last book of the Old Testament. So we have been on this journey now for, I mean, I don't know how many weeks, but I think this is uh, more than sermon number 39. I think this is sermon 42 uh, in our Old Testament book overview series. So knowing the greatest story from Genesis to Revelation, we've been going uh, one book at a time through the Bible, and we're going to pick up uh, in the fall, Lord willing, with the New Testament. But we are finishing the Old Testament this morning uh, with the book of Malachi. Now, this will be really interesting if I don't have my sermon notes. Then we'll really be in for a, a surprise. All right, I think we're okay. Malachi, sounds like everyone's there. So let me uh, go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And um, we thank you that you know us uh, far better than we know ourselves. And when we come to your word, that it, it is able to do this amazing work to discern the thoughts and intentions of our own heart. It, it reads us better than we can read it or read ourselves. So Lord, we ask that you would do that work in us and pray that you would bring about renewal, that you would bring about transformation, and that you would conform us even more to the image of your son, Jesus, as we open up your word this morning. So Lord, would you open our eyes, open our hearts to behold the wondrous things that you have prepared for us here. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I'll begin with a time of confession. I have a confession I want to make. And that is that for about the first 22 years of my life, I was thinking about this, about 22 years, I think, I hugely underappreciated and underesteemed the love that my parents had for me. Anybody? Amen that? Amen that in your own life? Kids, did you hear what I said? Yeah, look up here. Eyes up here. For 22 years, I did not appreciate, I'm probably still learning, the love that my parents had for me. And looking out here, I know your parents have a love like that for you. So don't take it for granted. I think from the ages 11 to 18, I would probably have even thought this or maybe even said this, that I could probably do life better without them. Yeah, I think I, you know, from 11 to 18, that's what I genuinely believe. I didn't really need my parents. They weren't as smart as me. I knew far more than they knew. And really, because I lacked this proper sense of the love that they had for me, I actually ended up missing out on a lot. There was a lot I wish I could go back and do over again because I took their love for granted. At times, I would say I treated them with such disrespect that I am embarrassed to even think about it today. I don't know if I shared this story, but it came to mind this morning. There was a time I grew up playing competitive tennis. My parents were not wealthy. Anytime they took me on a trip uh, to play tennis, it was a sacrifice. It was a labor of love. My mom had taken off work. Uh, we, were dry we drove down to Austin stayed in a hotel and I had a really bad match and I got so upset that in the next match, I just walked up to the net and I shook the person's hand and I said, I quit. My mom, taken off work, invested all this money, driven me down there, put me in a hotel and I said, I quit. My mom didn't speak to me on the way back that day. But these are some of the, the just insane things that I think about that like, what was I thinking? They were pouring out their love and they were sacrificing and sacrificing for me. Like, what is wrong with me? But you know what's even more amazing? My parents still love me. 
they, they actually never stopped loving him. In fact, like after that, that trip that I took, you know, it would have been probably, you know, just for my mom to say, you're done. You're on your own. You can do better, life better without us. So we'll just let you do that. But it's amazing how they still love me to this day. And, you know, now that I'm, I'm gaining an appreciation for their love because I have kids of my own and because I have teenagers, uh, when I get to spend time with my parents, you know what I do now? I cherish it. Oh, we, we can FaceTime after church and we'll be on the, on the phone sometimes for two hours because I just want to enjoy the love of my parents. My heart has completely uh, ha- done a turn on this one area of my life and I pray that it, it still will. Well, uh, hold on to that thought. Hold on to that illustration for a little bit because uh, we're going to look at a people in Malachi that have com- had completely lost sense of God's great love for them and how it really just led them on a path to destruction. Malachi's name means messenger. Malachi was a messenger. And so Malachi had a message. He had a message from the Lord. And the message that he was bringing to God's people was essentially a wake-up call For all of God's children, for the people of Israel, the people of Judah, it was a wake-up call to help them understand all the ways in which they had failed to understand his love for them and had failed to trust that he had their best for them. Malachi was a messenger. He was also a messenger with a very specific message, a very specific message that there was coming a future message. Didn't say exactly when he was going to come, but he was very clear that there was a future messenger that he was supposed to tell them about. And this messenger was actually going to come on the scene in the future, and he was going to tell the people about the ultimate messenger that God sent to this world, and that was the messenger with the message that all of us need most. The Malachi, as I said, final book in the Old Testament. And what Malachi does is, as you would expect, I said the Bible is connected together at every point. It's one continuous story from beginning to end, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. Malachi, being the final book, is going to set us up perfectly to be able to understand and to receive the message that is coming to us in the New Testament, the New Covenant. So how does he do that? Well, Malachi prophesied around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, if you don't remember who Ezra and Nehemiah are, they were essentially leaders in Israel who were helping to lead this kind of uh, reconstruction effort to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, specifically with Nehemiah. It was rebuilding the city walls because they had been in captivity for 70 years, if you remember. They came back to the land. It was all in rubble, all in shambles. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have an altar. And so these were men, along with prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, who helped lead the people to reestablish Jerusalem as a city and reestablish temple worship. So the remnant of Judah, um, about 100 or so years earlier, had returned to the land. There were about 50,000 of them. And they had finished rebuilding now the temple. They had finished rebuilding the city. They had finished rebuilding the city walls. And all this was around 515 B.C. Ezra had kind of led a revival. He had led them to to kind of reform their lives and to turn back uh, to the Lord. And so now here they are. Think about this. Everything God promised, they're back in the land. He brought them out of captivity in Babylon. They're back in the land. They have their temple. They have their city. They have their city walls for protection. So in terms of life 150 years earlier, here we are now in the 400s BC. Life is far better. Life is far more peaceful than it was when they were being attacked by every nation, invaded by Babylon, their city was being destroyed, and when they were in slavery in Babylonian captivity. So life was a little less hectic, a little more comfortable. Well, what do we know about times like these in our own lives? 
Are these typically the times when we find ourselves devoted, most devoted to God? Are these the times when we find ourselves just wanting to draw near to God day in and day out, the times when we are most at ease? Well, I think my experience has been it's, it's actually the times of greatest trial that I find myself clinging to God most cl- closely. And the times when I'm most at ease, it's easy to fall back into old habits and neglect God altogether, to neglect his word, to neglect prayer, to neglect whatever it is that he is calling me to do to experience more of him. Well, needless to say, Judah was going through a very similar phase. Judah had fallen back now, you know, 100 years after the reforms um, that had come about, about 100 years later, they had fallen back into their old habits, their same patterns that would always end up leaving them spiritually bankrupt, vulnerable, spiritually impoverished. They were going back to doing all the things they were doing before the time of captivity. In Amos, actually we talked about this a few weeks ago, in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, God even said that a day was going to come because they refused to listen to him. A day was going to come when he was going to send a famine in the land. But it wasn't going to be like a famine in terms of like, food or anything like that. He said he was going to send a famine of hearing the words of God. So there was going to come a time where he would kind of just be silent to them. They, they wouldn't actually hear or listen to the words of God. And so sure enough, Malachi ends up being the last prophetic word of the Old Testament And really the last prophetic word for about 400 years. 400 years. Now I know it's easy. We think about like we have this Bible, like, well, they, you know, they could just get their Bible out and read it. But no, you know, it was the prophets coming to speak a direct word from God. Thus says the Lord. That was the way that they were guided by the law and the prophets time and time again. And now here, 400 years, and the Jewish people are keenly aware that God has not raised up any, a single prophet during that time. We sometimes refer to that as the 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. Not to say that there weren't things going on in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but in terms of a prophet specifically sent from God to deliver his message, 400 years passed until... Another prophet came on the scene by the name of John the Baptist. You ever heard of John the Baptist? John the Baptist was the next prophetic voice to be raised up between Malachi until the coming of Jesus. From Malachi until John the Baptist. In fact, when this John the Baptist was to be born, the angel Gabriel came to his dad, Zechariah, and he said, Many would rejoice at his birth that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the womb. And then he said this, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is the angel Gabriel telling John the Baptist's dad what John the Baptist is gonna do. In the spirit and power of Elijah, he's gonna turn the hearts of the fathers to the children the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Jesus said in Matthew eleven thirteen that all the prophets in the law prophesied until John the Baptist. And he says this, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Okay, got all that? No prophet. Malachi to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 4 and look at verse 5. Malachi 4 verse 5. Give you a second to read that to yourself. Malachi 4 verse 5. And then I'll read it out loud. 
Behold, last paragraph of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Do you remember those words from the angel Gabriel? Turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the father. And Elijah, who is to come. Now turn back to Malachi chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So he's going to send a messenger who's going to prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, that's the priests, and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. So this is how the Old Testament ends. I'm sending you a messenger who is going to prepare the way. Look out. A forerunner who Malachi identifies as Elijah is going to come and prepare the way. His message is going to change and prepare people's hearts so that they can receive the Lord who is to come. They can receive the Messiah that the Old Testament has been talking about this whole time. And when this messenger comes, this one sent directly from God, who is the Lord, he is going to purify and refine. He's also going to judge and he's going to separate the ungodly from the, God, from the godly. So the Old Testament ends like this. The vast majority of God's people have once again turned their backs on him. They've fallen into their old ways. They've become complacent. They are in love with the world, but they have no zeal for God. They have no time for worship. And really, on the whole, they are miserable. <laughs> They're just bitter and miserable and unhappy about the whole thing. And so Malachi comes along and says, wake up, get ready, turn your hearts to God. Very similar to John the Baptist when he comes on the scene. You know John the Baptist's first words? Repent, turn your hearts to God because the Lord is coming, be ready. But also take heart because you know what that means? He's not done with you. You may be asleep, but God is never asleep, and God still has a plan for his people. So that's really kind of uh, the big overview of what's going on in Malachi, the reason for Malachi's prophecy and how it's connecting us to the New Testament. I mean, just think about this. You read that last paragraph in 400 BC, or you hear that last, that last word in 400 BC, behold, I'm sending you a messenger Elijah, who is to come, he's going to turn the hearts of fathers. You hear that, and then for 400 years, you just know it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then one day in the wilderness, somebody comes and says, I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus says, this is Elijah. He is the prophet. And guess what? I'm here. I've come to save you. I think it's, I think that's really cool how the Old Testament's going. I don't know about you. But the people of Malachi are in this moment, right, really caught up in the busyness of life. They're caught up in the busyness of resettling, rebuilding, reestablishing their identity. Judah has essentially lost 
all sight of God's great love for them. And what it's going to do is it's going to manifest itself in a number of ways that God is going to call out. God is going to give them a rebuke for all the ways that they have left their first love. And so the message, the specifics of the message of Malachi are really about these big picture things that show how far their hearts have drifted from God. So if you turn with me to chapter one, we'll just move through these here really quickly. And it all begins with his statement in verse two. This is what's going to set the tone for the whole book of Malachi. In verse chapter one, verse two, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? So God is saying, children, I, I, I love you. I care about you. I have, I've always loved you. And what do they say? How have you loved us? Like, seriously, God, where is, where is your love? And that's the pattern that we're going to find over and over again throughout the book of Malachi. He's going to bring up really about four or five very serious charges Against them, and each time he does it, Judah's going to get very defensive. So the way this work is it works is God will say something, and then Judah will repeat back, Well, how can you say that? What are you talking about? So he says, I've loved you, and they say, How have you loved us? And then he says, You have polluted my offerings. And they say, How have we polluted you? And then later he says, I don't even accept your worship anymore because you've been so faithless. And, and what do they say? Well, why wouldn't you accept us? What have we done? And then later he says, you're also robbing me of my tithes. And then it says, but you say, well, how have we robbed you? And then later, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? You see, as the true motives of their heart are exposed before God, they get really uncomfortable and defensive. Does anybody ever do that? When you feel the, the conviction of God's word, do you, does your heart immediately begin to protest and think like, well, is that true? Am I, am I really as bad as, as you say? I think when Jesus says that, that uh, there'll come a time when many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do these mighty works in your name? And, and he'll say, I, I never knew you. I, I don't know what you're talking about. This is essentially what's going on with Judah. They think they have a heart for God because of outward religion, because they showed up to church day after day, because they came to the temple, but their hearts are so far from him. But I want to come back to this very first point. Where does it all begin? It begins with this one misunderstanding where God says, I have loved you, but they say, how have you loved us? We don't see your love anywhere around. Really, that is the root of every other problem that Judah has. Every problem that Malachi is going to address here stems from this one misunderstanding. They don't understand how God loves them. They have lost sight of his faithful and unconditional love for them. They have forgotten all the many ways he has blessed them. So God, uh, immediately he brings up the example of their brother Esau, their, the, their brother nation. God chose uh, Israel. He did not choose Esau. And he says, look, look at Esau. I haven't, I haven't chosen them. Anything they do, I will bring to nothing. But, but Judah, despite all of your unfaithfulness, I'm still here with you. I've preserved you. Remember when you were in the wilderness? Remember when you were enslaved to Egypt and I brought you out? Remember when uh, you were in captivity and I said I would bring you back to the land? Remember when I said that you would rebuild the temple again? Have I not come through on my word every single time? I'm here with you. I've I'm preserving you. I'm protecting you. I'm offering peace and prosperity to anyone who will turn to me. Time and time again, I have revived you from death. And, and here you are. You're, you're in the land. You have your temple. You have everything you need. And, and yet you're saying, 
How have I loved you? I think this is such a big point that Malachi makes, and that is this. This is for all of us. Whenever we lose our sense of God's lavish love for us, spiritual poverty is sure to follow. You can just mark it down right now. If you have lost your sense of God's lavish love for you, then I can guarantee you that spiritual poverty is about to follow. After reading Malachi over and over again for the past couple weeks, I would say I am more convinced of this point than ever before. Prosperity for the child of God flows from an accurate understanding of God's love. If we are going to prosper as his children, I don't mean materially, but spiritually, if we are going to prosper, we must have an accurate understanding of his love. I would even say that those who have an accurate understanding of God's love, they know that they don't need to go anywhere else. They don't need to look elsewhere for something better to satisfy them. And guess what? When you don't have to go looking elsewhere for something to satisfy you because you know all that you have in God, it's going to save you from a million heartaches that God never wanted you to have in the first place. Think about the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, probably the most joyful man in the history of the universe. Everything he went through and he was still able to say, I rejoice. I rejoice in my sufferings. I'm able to, uh, I'm able to uh, be content when I abound. I'm able to be content when I have nothing. The most joyful man, aside from Jesus, in the history of the universe, what did he say was that sustained him through all his trials and tribulations as a missionary? Well, he said this. The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ is what causes me to do everything that I do. John puts it like this very succinctly, the disciple John. He says, we love because he first loved us. We're, able to, we're, we're only able to love because we have known the love of God. Or consider Jesus' words, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Love is really the beginning point. Understanding the love of God is the beginning point for enjoying God. Now, there's really about, like I said, four or five major things that Malachi is going to point out that are wrong with them, things that they have gotten twisted on, things that he's going to call them to the carpet to that are really symptoms. They're just symptoms of having forgotten how much God truly loves them. And so the first complaint he has is the way that they are going about bringing their sacrificial or not so sacrificial offerings to God. The people, rather than bringing the best, God had said, bring me your best, the, the firstborn, the unblemished, the spotless. Rather than bringing the best, what the people were doing at the time in order to satisfy the requirement of the law, to, to bring the, the sacrifices before God, is that they were just taking their leftovers. They were taking all the things that they didn't want, and they were saying, here, God, let me offer this up to you. When what they were really thinking was, because I sure don't want it anymore. God, you can have this. They were offering up what costed them nothing. Their worship was really nothing more than just going through the motions to try to check a box to say, I did it. I did what you said. And think how foolish it was. They were hoping that they could somehow satisfy God that they could like scratch the itch of religious duty, but there was no love. There was no love behind it all. Read in um, chapter one, verse eight, he says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, this is what they're doing, offering blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor, will he accept you? Or show you favor? 
He's saying you're, you're presenting things to God you wouldn't even present to another human being because you'd be so embarrassed and ashamed to do it. Just think about like at, at work, you know, when, you're, when, you're work, when your boss has something he wants you to deliver, a, a package or a presentation or, or whatever it is, um, there's a certain standard that you're like, I'm not coming to the boss till I get it to at least this, you know, A plus level because I don't want to get flame sprayed for giving this less than satisfactory thing to him. And yet this is the way that they were treating God. They were essentially treating God like some kind of dog. Like, oh, we'll just give him the leftovers. Now, we don't have the sacrificial system today. We're not called to, to take the firstborn of our flock, these unblemished animals, and present them and say, God, here is the best of all that I have. But think about your own worship. How often do we treat our worship, whether it's private worship in prayer during the week or our time in the word or our time coming together and serving in the church? How often do we give God our leftovers? We get to the end of our week and we say, okay, God, let's see. I've got about an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. Is that good enough? Can I give you that? I know I haven't really paid attention to you all week long, but, but why don't I just give you the leftovers and what I have. How many people have such a fierce commitment to the workplace and to their boss? They're, they wouldn't dream of showing up late a single day. And yet when it comes to the church or when it comes to the, the worship of God, sometimes I think church is the one place where we all agree that we can just be as flaky as possible. And everyone's okay with it, right? Because we're gracious and we're loving. But think of it in your own heart. What is that saying to God? Do you realize the extreme measures God has taken to demonstrate his love for you? Now, related to this issue of worship, he's also going to come down really hard on the priests because the priests are the leaders, you know, the pastors of the church. And so as they lead, so the people go. And so what he says is he says that the priests are basically kind of just picking and choosing what parts of the law they want to obey. Whether, if this one's advantageous to me, I'll obey it. But if this one is a little too costly or hard, then uh, I, th I think I'll throw that one out. And the way that they're actually teaching the people, very similar to the way that pastors teach churches today, they kind of maybe avoid the harder truths and, and they say what makes the people feel good because that's more advantageous to them. Remember some of Jesus's rebukes in the New Testament, Jesus uh, rebuked the Pharisees one time by saying, you know, you tithe your, your spices, you tithe your dill and your cumin, but you neglect things like mercy and justice and faithfulness. So Malachi here, it says here in chapter 2, uh, verse 7, he, he says it like this, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And again, what does it come down to? What does it come back to? It comes back to a failure to understand God's love for them. Jesus said, he who, keep, who, he who loves me keeps my commandments. The two go hand in hand. And if you remember David's psalm, Psalm 119, an entire psalm dedicated to how much he loves God's law, how much he loves God's instruction, because it's God saying, this is what's best for you. I love you. I care about you. He says, I, meditated on, I meditate on it all day long. And he says, it's a delight and an honor to walk in these truths of God. The third rebuke that Malachi has regards marriage. Okay, so they're, they're bringing broken sacrifices. They're not teaching the truth. They're not obeying the truth. And then he brings this really specific one home. He says, you guys have completely gotten marriage wrong. Marriage, an institution that God has established for the furthering of godly offspring, you guys have gotten all of the lines crossed and you're all messed up on this. Number one, you're marrying the daughters of foreign gods. Now, to, to marry foreign women in this day was basically to, to split your allegiance. 
Okay, I'm with you, God, but now I'm also going to pledge my allegiance to the God over here represented by this woman that I'm about to marry. So essentially what they were doing is saying, God, I'm going to try to serve you and I'm going to try to serve something else at the same time, which we know you can't serve two masters, right? So they're marrying the daughters of foreign gods. And not only are they doing that, but they're taking the wife of their youth, the one who is actually a part of the covenant family who God has provided for them to enjoy the covenant relationship, and they're just divorcing them for willy-nilly reasons. I don't like you. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You're not pleasing to me anymore. So they're divorcing their, the wives of their youth, and they're marrying the gods of foreign women. We see this in chapter 2, verse 15. starting in verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Why does he not accept our, our offerings? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of of your youth. Now, if you are doubting God's love for you, if you're doubting that he really is the one who has what's best in store for you, if, if you don't see how he has poured out his love and kindness upon you time and time again, and you begin to question his faithfulness to his covenant, what do you think that's going to do to you and your relationship with every other covenant? Where do you think that might lead you. Well, if God is not faithful to me, then why do I need to be faithful to anyone else? If he hasn't loved me, then what does it matter whether I love the wife of my youth or whether I love this person over here? And the third thing he says is he says, the whole point of this was to produce godly offspring. And so you know that if you understood the love of God in your life, you would do everything in your power to instill that same love in the life of your children but you're yoking yourself with people who don't even care about God. So what do you expect your children to grow up and do? They're not going to have any sense of a covenant relationship with God. The New Testament reiterates this principle. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And the way I say this very simply to my kids is... Do not marry an unbeliever. <laughs> I'll just say it like that. Do not date an unbeliever. Do not marry an unbeliever. The first question you should ask if you're going to date someone is, does he or she love Jesus? And if the answer to that question is no, you can be friends, whatever, but do not enter into a covenant relationship with somebody who's going to take you, to pull you away from God. And this is Malachi's word to the people. Really quick, pastoral word to my church family here. I know, I know there are people in this church who are married to unbelievers. Do not divorce them. God says, no, because of that marriage now, that marriage is actually holy. That marriage has been set apart because now you are a vessel of God that is a witness to his glory to the person you've married. If you were to divorce them, then you would be multiplying sin, but that marriage is holy and your relationship with your kids is holy because you are now a witness to God's glory in that covenant relationship. That's 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to read about that later. But the fourth rebuke, the fourth rebuke concerns holding back the tithes or the offerings that God had required for his people. And he had, he had established this in the law. There were certain tithes, tithes being a 10% of their produce, a 10% of what they, what they had that was to be set apart for the service of God, whether it was uh, for temple worship or whether it was for um, the priesthood or whether it was for just leaving part of your land so that the poor could come and, and could glean from it. They were supposed to offer tithes and offerings to God. And he says, God's complaint with them, he says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then he says, here's what you need to do. If you want to return to me, bring the full tithe. This is chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And if you look down at further at verse 14, you see that it's not just the tithes that they're holding back. He says, you have said it is vain to serve God. It's, it's pointless to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They're basically asking, what's the point of all this? Why would I even want to do your law? Is it really worth it to, to serve you? Because, I mean, what do I get out of it? Like, what's in it for me? If, if I commit to serving you, then like, what are you, you going to do for me? But again, they're completely missing the point. God is saying, I have loved you. I have loved you with an unmistakable, unconditional love. And I have provided everything that you need in order to live. And therefore, I have put this requirement in your law to offer what is best to me so that you can experience my love even more as you serve in my kingdom. So you come to the end of Malachi. These are the, the major rebukes, you know, the, uh, the, the broken sacrifices, the, the priesthood failing to teach, showing partiality, uh, marriage, abusing marriage, and then withholding their tithes and really withholding their gifts and their service. And you come to the very end and it feels, it's just very depressing, really. Like after all that they've been through, all these books of the Old Testament we've been talking about, time and time again, they just keep returning to their vomit. They just keep going back to their old ways. It feels like, okay, this is the last straw. I think it's okay if God just destroys them right here and right now. But this is the point. This is the place where God reiterates just what it's going to take to fix their hearts. The solution that they need, the change that is going to have to take place if they are going to endure with God in fellowship with Him forever. They need someone who will show them in the ultimate sense what is the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of God. Now, when this messenger comes, it's not always going to feel nice. He is going to shake them up. He says that he is going to be one who purifies them and refines them like fire and like fuller's soap, which I assume is like, you know, lava soap, the really scratchy stuff that it's kind of painful, but it gets you clean. Um, it's not always going to be pleasant, this process, when he comes. He's going to deal directly with your heart. It's going to hurt. He's going to bring conviction. It's going to be costly. You're going to have to give up certain things. But it's also that you would understand and abide in the love of God for all eternity. So we come to those first words of the coming prophet John when he comes on the scene. What does he say? Repent. He says repent, which basically means you need to change your mind about the way that you have been living. And friends, I'll just say this to you right now. If you feel any sense of conviction this morning, whether it's, it's the way that we're worshiping, the way that we're giving attention to God, the way that we are uh, treating the sacred covenant of marriage, the way that we are teaching the truth to our children or we are obeying the truths, the way that we are giving to him, the best of what we have been given, if there's any conviction at all, change your mind about how you've been living this morning and return to the Lord. Now, I can tell you, it can sometimes seem almost impossible to make those kinds of changes in your life when you're thinking about it like this. But then I'd have to give up this. And then I have to give this, and, and, and then I, I'd have to tell my boss that I could no longer 
work on Sundays, and, and, but I mean, that's a lot of money. I can't give up that money. I can't part with, well, my, my kids are involved in so many activities. How could I possibly take? And we realize there's like 10,000 things that we've webbed in this crazy, we've weaved in this crazy web, and yeah, it's costly, and it hurts, but guess what? What you gain in exchange, if you're giving your heart to God, if you're giving him your best, what you gain in exchange is infinitely, infinitely, infinitely better always. Paul says whatever gain he thought he had in his former life before his conversion, he now counts it as garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So when Jesus came, when this messenger of the covenant that was promised by Malachi came on the scene, you know what he did? What he essentially did was he cut through all of the pretend outward religiosity, all of the things that they were doing to try to keep up appearances. He cut through all of it to get right to the heart of the matter of what it means to truly love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when he came, he revealed to us what it actually means to forsake the world, to forsake the love of the world, to forsake all the competing commitments that the world has for us, and to truly bind our hearts to God. Do you remember what he said to the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler said, good teacher, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? I've obeyed all the, all the Ten Commandments, so I'm good, right? Jesus said, well, are you willing to give up everything to follow me? And he went away sad. He missed out on the greatest love that he could have ever enjoyed. When Jesus came, he also showed us that whatever we give up for the sake of the kingdom, we are going to gain an infinite treasure in return. When he came, he demonstrated that his father was willing to spare no cost to save us from sin and death. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously also with him give us all good things? When he came, he was in every moment revealing the father's love and exposing our deep need for it. Now, there was a very small minority in the book of Malachi that we see actually repent and turn to God. If you look in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. They repented, they feared the Lord, they honored their father and master. They esteemed his name. And guess what? God remembered his love and kindness toward them. And what does he say of them? They shall be mine. How many of you on that day want to hear the Lord say of you, you are mine? Isn't that the, the, the greatest thing that any of us could hope for in this life? Think about it. If God were to say, well, think about how terrifying it would be. At the, at the end of that time, God says, depart from me. I never knew you. But for God to look at you and say, you are mine. Come here with me. So my question is, are you his in this way? Does your heart belong to God? And Christian brother, I know most of us here, Christian brother, Christian sister, if you are his, and you find that your heart is shouting out this morning. I want him. I want God. I want to be his. Maybe you're a little wounded. Maybe you're a little convicted, but shouting, I want Jesus. What's holding you back? 
from experiencing him right now, like right here and right now, what is holding you back from experiencing his love in this way? I think we so often create our own misery in this life. We create our own misery because we choose to forego living in all of those places and spaces where we would end up experiencing God's love the most. If we would just simply respond to what he calls us to. And what happens is when we go without the reminder and the experience of that love, we end up chasing after other loves. We end up chasing after everything else that does not fulfill, that does not satisfy. And you know what happens when we chase after those things? We bind our hearts to foreign gods, if you will. We bind our affections to foreign gods. And when you bind your affection to foreign gods, guess what? You forget about God's love for you in the first place. So you forget about his love, you bind yourself to foreign gods, you forget about his love, you forget about his love until you have barely the faintest idea of who God is and the multitude of his blessings that he has lavished on us. I was thinking about this on the drive here this morning when John says, what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called his children. And I I, I just confess to you this morning I was able to say it, I was able to call it to mind, but I don't experience in the way that I wish I did. I don't experience in the way that that John probably did when he was able to say how great the Father's love that he's lavished on us that we should be called his children. I wanna know that. I wanna know that experience more than anything else. And I realized, well, Davey, the more you play around with these stupid things, these hobbies, your phone, whatever the distractions of the day are, like, you're never gonna know that. And I was just really convicted. Get, get rid of those. Break those ties. Break whatever it is that's keeping your heart from God. Consider what it is that you may have bound your heart to that is keeping you from the love of God this morning. And as you do that, call out to God this morning. Repent. Cry out and just say, I don't even know where to begin, but God, I want to experience your love more in my life. And You know what? He says you can test him in this. (laughs) Now, don't test the Lord your God, but he says in this way, you can test him. Give him your whole heart and, and see if he doesn't open the windows of heaven and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need.